This episode is brought to you in part by The Table Podcast from the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. I'm Daryl Bach, one of the hosts, and I invite you to join us as we discuss issues of God and culture, which includes anything and everything. Listen on your podcast app or at dts.edu slash the table. It is Wednesday, July 31st, and you're listening to Quick to Listen, where we go beyond hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. I'm Morgan Lee, digital media producer here at Christianity Today. I'm joined by my colleague, CT Pastors Editor, Kyle Rohane. Hi, Morgan. What's up, Kyle? How are you? I'm doing well. I'm I'm a little tired today from being up a lot of the night with a new baby, but otherwise, glad to be here. <laughs> all things considered. I have a random question about your last name. Are you a Lord of the Rings fan at all? <laughs> I am. I am. Did but... you ever feel like my last name is similar to this I don't know, kingdom, land of Rohan. I, I feel like Tolkien messed up by accidentally misspelling Rohan. It should have had an E at the end. Would that have made your life complete? It, yeah, it absolutely would have. <laughs> All right. Who's joining us today? Someone else who has a great name, as far as I know. Yeah. So our guest this week is Drew Dick. And Drew is an acquisitions editor at Moody Publishers. And he has written several books, including his most recent, which is Your Future Self Will Thank You, Secrets to Self-Control from the Bible and Brain Science, and Generation X Christian, Why Young Adults Are Leaving the Church and How to Bring Them Back. And I first met Drew when I started at Christianity Today because he was actually my first boss here. He was managing editor of Leadership Journal when I was an editorial resident. And these days we've flipped the script a little bit and he I get to boss him around because Is he... that true, Drew? <laughs> it is, sadly enough. Yes, it has flipped. <laughs> so he yeah, he still works as a contributing editor for CT Pastors. Uh, we're we're very grateful to have him still contributing. So welcome, Drew. Hey, thank you guys so much for having me. This is awesome just to reconnect and I'm a listener as well. And so it's really cool to get to be on the show. It is really cool to have you on the show. And I feel like we could be having you on the show for so many reasons. So I'm excited that we chose the most controversial reason. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, I say I'm excited to be on. But yeah, as listeners will soon discover, it's not the happiest of topics. It is not the happiest of topics and maybe even a dicey topic to be sure. So I am going to just let all of our listeners know what we are going to be chatting about today. So two weeks ago... Josh Harris, the author of the controversial Christian bestseller, I Kiss Dating Goodbye, announced that he and his wife, Shannon, were ending their marriage. Last week, Harris had another Instagram post, this time about the state of his faith. And it's a pretty long Instagram post. I'm just going to read one particular graph from it. He said, I have undergone a massive shift in regard to my faith in Jesus. The popular phrase for this is, quote, deconstruction. The biblical phrase is, quote, falling away. By all the measurements that I have for defining a Christian, I am not a Christian. Many people tell me that there is a different way to practice faith, and I want to remain open to this, but I'm not there now. That is the end of the part of the post that we're going to read. So many Christians found this news jarring. 
Almost all of Harris's life has been spent as a public Christian, first as the author of said polemic relationship book, then as a sovereign grace mega church pastor. In recent years, he's publicly distanced himself from most of the convictions from I Kiss Dating Goodbye, and he even joined our show on episode 67 to talk about where he stood regarding some of the positions he took in his book. So this week on Quick to Listen, we wanted to talk about how to process our emotions and reactions when public figures and loved ones leave Christianity. Kyle and I were chatting a little bit about this first, about our gut check section, which of course is when you hear from us, the hosts, about how we really feel about these particular topics. And I would say that it's this particular one for me, it's been interesting, I guess. You know, one of the things that happens when you're a public figure is that anything that you say about your faith and convictions is kind of scrutinized in a different manner. And so part of the reason that Josh even came onto our show a couple of years ago is because he'd been publicly talking about how he didn't necessarily agree with some of the convictions and that he really wanted to listen to people who really felt hurt in many ways by the stuff in I Kiss Dating Goodbye. I don't think we got into faith that much at that time, but you could tell that he was trying to really make amends for things that he had done wrong. Yeah, I think this news kind of took me a little bit by surprise in a weird way. You know, I I think it's always interesting because whenever someone tells you something that you're inclined to disagree with in some ways, it's also really difficult to listen to them. And so I think almost to some extent, I was just thinking of Harris's own posture towards listening to hear people challenge him and thinking about how he chose to listen and engage in that and about how that sometimes is the counterintuitive feeling that I have, but also not necessarily like an unhelpful one in this way. Yeah, I would say my my first reaction was just recognizing how layered the situation is because this does happen on occasion and it does happen with public Christian figures from time to time. But in this case, you have somebody who who came into the public scene in the evangelical world as a very young man, uh, wrote his book when he was uh, quite a bit younger than than many of the people who become quote-unquote Christian celebrities. But then he was a megachurch pastor for several years. Clearly in the last few years, he's been on a journey processing through what what he initial, uh, initially brought to the kind of evangelical cultural space, how that has affected people across the country, but also clearly has driven his own thinking on certain topics. I think the piece that struck me most was thinking about what is his congregation, his his former congregation processing about this right now. When a pastor steps down for whatever reason, retires or, or leaves ministry, that doesn't necessarily mean that that person relinquishes their role as a spiritual parent. And even though it has been a few years since he was in active public uh, Yeah, because he ministry, stepped down from his megachurch role. That still has to have some kind of effect on the people who listened to him week to week, who who saw him as a spiritual authority figure. And I do wonder what they're thinking right now. I do wonder what those former congregants, how, how they're processing. And we may get into that a little bit more later on. So, Drew, you're in some ways a contemporary of Josh Harris's. I was wondering if you might want to give your two cents about the situation, too. Yeah, sure. Like a lot of people, of course, I was shocked. <laughs> I'm not close to Josh. We have exchanged 
exchanged messages a few times over the years. As you know, he wrote a piece for CT Pastors just a few years ago about going to seminary at the age of 40. We cleverly titled it The 40-Year-Old Seminarian. <laughs> and so, you know, I, I knew that, you know, obviously he had taken a, a sort of unconventional route in the sense that he was a megachurch pastor who then went to seminary, but I, I didn't really have an inkling that he was going through such a dramatic deconstruction of his faith until, of course, we all saw this post on Instagram. And so, yeah, I think it was just a very shocking thing. But like Kyle said, I think it probably pales in comparison to the shock and even the grief that the people that sat under his ministry for over a decade would feel. Because thankfully, this is a rare event in the sense that most pastors or Christian leaders don't openly, you know, say that they've fallen away from the faith. And so understandably, there's a lot of consternation because it's an implicit threat to your own faith, I think, especially when it's someone you admired, that you learned from, that you looked up to, has such a dramatic shift away from faith. Kind of wonder about yourself. Well, why am I a believer still? Is this uh, so? I think that accounts for some of the grief, some of the shock, and even some of the shrill tone that I've seen from people responding to this online. And I think, you know, I don't think that's the right approach often, but at the same time, I want to be charitable, especially to people who were part of his church or, or read his books. I can understand the reaction. Drew, you just touched on this a little bit, but I would like you to kind of just explain a little bit more, like, what's the normal range of emotions that Christians are going to feel when a public figure announces that they're leaving the faith? I think it does kind of follow that tra trajectory. First of all, they're surprised that this would happen. Um, you don't expect it. You might expect it from an angsty teenager or young adult who goes off to college, encounters different ideas, and, and falls away from the faith of their childhood. That's a little more typical. But this is pretty shocking. And then there's grief, just a sense of loss. And then often that can morph into anger because, like I said, you feel a little bit of betrayal, perhaps, especially if you had a personal connection to this person. And, you know, some of the reactions that I've seen that are probably a little that are unhelpful, almost two extremes. I've seen some people uh, online, at least, kind of praising this decision that he's made just for its honesty and authenticity. And well, yeah, that's that's good that he's being honest about it. At the same time, I I don't I wouldn't be one of the ones that joins the course of praising someone for walking away from the faith. I do think it's sad, and I think it's okay to acknowledge that. On the other hand, the the opposite reaction of sort of lashing out at that person, saying, oh, they were always duplicitous, or just kind of starting to bash them, write them off entirely, or you know, import all kinds of bad motivations on their part, that's not helpful at either, either because it's important to remember that there are people watching us, right? Uh, unbelievers, people that have walked away, other Christians that may be doubting. And, and when we react like that, can actually push people further away. Yeah. And I think what was interesting in the full post that Josh Harris made regarding his faith, he actually specifically mentions all of these ways that he's heard from people following the news about his divorce, which means that <laughs> he's reading the comments. I, I just think that that adds an entirely other dimension to, to everything that's going on, is that the person who is telling you all of this type of stuff is also able to absorb a lot of this public conversation, whether it's in the Instagram comments or on social media themselves. You know, So even if people kind of think of it, maybe the way that they're talking about sports or some sort of other celebrity when they're just like throwing someone's name around all the time, he's, he's being very candid in the fact that he's reading them and seeing what people are 
we're seeing. Absolutely. You could see that. He was even reacting to some of the comments that people left. I think it's easy, too, when someone's prominent, and I, at least within our little sphere, uh, the Christian world is famous. It's easy to think of that person not as a real person, but just sort of a figurehead and just lash out as if they're not paying attention when I think they often are. And of course, you know, that's a very vulnerable moment when you've walked away, announced at least that you've walked away from the faith or however he put it. Yeah, he used the word deconstruction or falling away. And so we do want to be gentle, even as we express our grief and shock. Do you think that any of these emotions or reactions are different when we hear this news from a loved one? Yeah, I think what makes it different when it's a loved one just, or like a family member, close friend, it's a little trickier. The stakes are higher, obviously, right? If it's your son or daughter or spouse, obviously it impacts your, your life on a whole different level. And it's tricky, too, because there's a whole relational history there, right? And so, you know, I've talked to a lot of parents that have had their grown children make a decision to leave the church or even the faith. And often the ways they respond are very counterproductive, right? Because you kind of think, well, I can just go, no, you need to do this or start preaching at them or they get incredibly defensive. And so, while it's great that there's that relational connection. It can actually sabotage it because there's a lot of white hot emotions that arise, especially in the immediate aftermath of someone saying, hey, you know what? I'm out. I'm not a Christian anymore. So it's really important to take a deep breath, take a step back, and really be careful in how you approach the topic of faith going forward. Well, let's get a little prescriptive for a second. What are some things you should absolutely never, ever say to someone who's just decided to disclose to you that they've left Christianity? Yeah, well, there, there, I'm sure there's a, a large range yeah, we will of not. This is not all-inclusive. <laughs> right. No, but I think, I think the, one of the common ones that I've seen is starting to hazard guesses as to why they left. Right. Or or just telling them why they left, because you believe, oh, you, you're just doing that because you're compromising morally and you can't hack it as a Christian anymore. So you're changing your creed to match your conduct, to use a popular expression. That's unhelpful. Even if you're right, say you happen to even be right in the particular circumstance. It's not going to be helpful for facilitating productive dialogue with that person going forward. I think another thing, too, is to immediately try to argue. Right. Just jumping right into I, I love apologetics. OK, they're absolutely essential. We have to study, know why we believe what we believe. But when you just ju- when you just go there and go, okay, how, how do you deal with Jesus's claim to be Lord? And, you know, just <laughs> start right there. I think that can be unhelpful as well. I think the first thing to say is just to affirm your love for them like this. Okay, I understand that you're changing your stance on faith. This doesn't change our relationship. I love you. I'm not going anywhere. This doesn't change our relationship. I'm going to still be your dad or your mom or your brother or sister or friend. That's huge because that's what they need to hear because they're in a very vulnerable state at that point as well. So to hear that kind of affirmation from you is essential. Well, that leads me to another question that I have as well, which is if we suspect for whatever reason that someone is leaving in the process of leaving Christianity or has left it in some way, is this something that we should always wait for them to bring up and to disclose with us? Or is there a way that might be healthier for us to kind of be vulnerable first? I think it's okay to broach the topic. If you suspect that someone has kind of been on a certain trajectory, I certainly have friends in my life like that. And it can be, you don't want to be accusatory, obviously, because that can be threatening. They may not be ready to open up to you and that's fine as well. 
But if you can ask open-ended questions like, hey, where are you at these days spiritually? Just be curious to find out. And then if they do open up, it's really important to hear them out entirely without jumping in, without interrupting, like I said, without arguing. Because, you know, for my first book, I I tracked down dozens of 20-somethings mainly that had walked away from the the faith. It was a good practice for me because I tend, I love to argue, love to get in there and (laughs) kind of mix it up. Uh, But I was, you know, playing the journalist, so I had to kind of bite my tongue and just kind of listen to their entire stories sometimes for an hour or two. And it was incredible to me just, you know, some of them even said, like, it's so good to have someone listen to my story, to actually get this all out. Because often when it comes up, someone jumps in and starts to argue with them rather than hearing out the whole story. And often the very first things they say aren't the, the real issues sometimes, right? They might have an intellectual uh, objection to the faith, but then you dig into the story a little more, you hear a little more about their journey, and they had some awful experience even in their childhood in the church, and that's maybe the core issue. So it's really important to kind of get the full story at first without judgment, without arguing, because if you're going to have a productive conversation going forward, it has to start that way, I think. Kind of along those lines, Drew, I'd like to talk about one of the terms that Josh used specifically. And he said that he was in a process of deconstruction and he equated that with falling away. And this is a term that I've heard a few people use recently, both public figures, but also a, a friend or two talked about the fact that their faith was in deconstruction mode. Do you think it's appropriate to say that deconstruction is synonymous with leaving the church or leaving the faith? Or is that something different? I think it's something different. I was a little surprised to see him equating those two. Often people do use a term like deconstruction to mean a rejection of the faith, but I think usually they don't. I think usually they're talking about, hey, listen, I kind of inherited this faith perhaps from my parents or, you know, from childhood. I'm realizing that as I get older, as I study more, as I learn more, I need to really make this my own and it's going to change. I mean, how many of us can say that our faith is identical to what it was when we were teenagers, right? That That's that's incredibly rare. I think in some way we all go through subtle deconstructions in our faith, and that's okay as long as there's a construction. I mean, the, the term deconstruction comes from literary criticism, and it doesn't mean to, like it sounds like, tear down something. It actually means to expose the tensions within a text, right, and, and, and kind of see how it's put together, what power dynamics are at play. And so in the best sense, deconstruction of faith can actually be a positive thing where you're just giving it a closer analysis and truly trying to understand how your faith works, what's essential, what's inessential, what's cultural, what's truly biblical. Anyway, all to say, I do think that people can go through a healthy deconstruction that ends up with a stronger faith. And that was my prayer for for Josh when I saw his announcement, is that he would kind of go more that route rather than just throwing out the entire thing. And I think it's especially hard for people that come from a little more fundamentalist, perhaps, background, because they think that if they're if they're going to depart from what they believe, believed in their childhood, it's almost an all or nothing proposition when, of course, there are many ways to be a faithful Christian. And so, yeah, I think deconstruction can be a healthy thing and is not synonymous with falling away. Yeah, I remember in college especially, several friends, that just a very popular phrase that people used was making my faith my own. This idea that they had been handed something by their parents or by their faith community, and that had gotten them so far up until that point. But at this, but now they had to do some kind of processing to own their faith in a new way, and maybe deconstruction is part of that. I am curious about this as a trajectory, and it's very easy to see a statement like this as final 
or somebody, a friend saying that they've left the church, a friend saying that they've decided that they're not a Christian anymore, that that is kind of the final word on the subject. What what would you say to people who are tempted to treat it as the last word in the conversation? I would say, obviously, it's difficult if someone especially has like totally rejected the faith and walked away and made that announcement. It's hard to get them to come back to church, to be open to um, coming back to the faith. I'm not going to pretend it isn't, but it's also not hopeless, right? I mean, obviously that person at, at one point was a, you know, a passionate uh, believer and and really ascribed to these things and they changed their minds. Who's to say that they won't change their mind again in the future? And life is long, especially when it's with younger people, I've found. You know, I'm thankful to God that I didn't stay in the exact same spot I was faith-wise or in other ways as I was when I was 18, right? Today, I'm a very different person and have different beliefs and everything. So yeah, people certainly aren't static in their faith journeys. So I encourage people not to give up, even when it seems hopeless. When I did my interviews, one of the questions I asked, and I have have to give credit to my wife because she's like, you got to ask this question. Ask these people, and these were all, you know, self-described ex-Christians. They were atheists, agnostics. She said, ask them if they ever still pray. And I was like, no, you don't understand. These people are really mad at God. They're, <laughs> they're totally done with Christianity. That's I, I don't think they're going to take kindly to that question. But I said, well, I'll ask it anyway. And I was amazed. Most of them, like with a couple of exceptions, most of them admitted that at times they still do. And they were these angry at times and very honest, desperate sort of prayers. And yet for me, that was just, it was encouraging. I, I do believe that God still works in people's hearts, even when they seem like they have left the fold altogether. So yeah, we we don't want to give up on these people, not to spiritualize it too much, but I believe God hasn't given up on them. He's the good shepherd that Jesus is the good shepherd that goes, leaves the 99, goes searching for the one. And we have to have that same heart, that same commitment and that same hope. I would say maybe just to push back on this a little bit, that it feels very, very challenging to be very vulnerable with people. If you feel like in the back of their head, they're just saying, oh, they're going to come back around at some point. Yes. Or yes. they'll see the light one day and that you can kind of still feel that rejection from people if you feel like the only way that they're accepting you is because eventually you'll see that they're right at some point. That's a good caveat. You certainly don't want to say things like that. Like, oh no, God will bring you back. First of all, you don't know. Let's be honest. Right. <laughs> um, and second, it's it's kind of patronizing and dismissive of the current position that they're in. I know that I feel the same when I've corresponded and talked with atheists that say, no, you'll see the light. Like, you'll, you know, once you get smart enough, you read enough, you're going to disavow your faith. Kind of going, OK, well, thanks for speaking over my voice and telling me what I'm going to do. <laughs> right. And so that's certainly not helpful either. You can have you can express your desire that that they that they would come back to to their faith and yet to tell them no, it's going to happen, uh, like you know, I think is a mistake. I think this is actually one of those things that falls into like the power of persuasion 101. Don't announce <laughs> out loud <laughs> that they will one day accept your position, right? Because that can just end up alienating more people in the process, even if they end up coming around to your position one day. Absolutely. Drew, I had on a slightly different angle, I, I brought this up earlier. I'm curious about how this is unique uh, when it's 
not just a, a friend or somebody you know who leaves Christianity or the church, but when it is somebody in a position of spiritual authority, when it's a pastor who who steps away, how does that make the situation more complicated? And for people who, who are listening who might have even experienced that, what kind of encouragement or advice can we give to somebody who the person that maybe even originally shared their faith with them no longer holds to that faith? The first thing I would say is you want to I'd want to acknowledge the confusion and the hurt that that can cause. It's different than, say, your buddy or, you know, someone who's kind of on the same level as you spiritually walking away when someone who you looked up to as a spiritual authority. It's incredibly disillusioning. I think I saw a lot of people in in the aftermath of Josh Harris's announcement kind of going, oh, who cares? You know, I, I just follow Jesus. Like, I mean, why would I care if this guy walked away? And and while that may technically be true, we don't want to idolize any human and be shaken by by their lack of faith. But let's face it, it does. It hurts. It stings. It, it's a threat to our own faith often, especially if we were directly influenced by this person, saw them as our pastor or a thought leader that we really admired. So yeah, I, I think that's the first thing is is the grief and the confusion is perfectly understandable. And I have seen this in my own life. I mean, and the hardest thing for me, for some reason, you know, because I, I love I love theology. And so when there's someone who uh, I think has this kind of beautiful, sophisticated grasp of theology and and scripture, and then they either walk away or has been more common, have some moral failing that disqualifies them from ministry, I kind of go, how is that? Because I thought if you if you really understood the grace of God at, at a deep level or had this sophisticated grasp of Christian theology, that somehow you'd be impervious to those sorts of, of sins, which of course sounds silly when I say it out loud, but I think that's kind of the the assumption a lot of people have, including myself. And so you see those leaders fall. I talked to a pastor out here in the Northwest who talked about running into his old youth pastor, and the guy's an atheist now, and he's the guy who led him to Jesus. I mean, what do you do with that? That That's that's really troubling. And I think it just has to, it, it does, even though it's a cliche, you have to look at Jesus rather than, you know, other people that you're going to make into your spiritual idol. But at the same time, it's, I think that's what spiritual maturity kind of is, is when you are no longer kind of riding the faith coattails of other people, depending upon them for assurances, right? That you, even when these heroes that you've had or spiritual leaders have fallen, you stay the course and and keep following Jesus. You know, I just, I I commend people who, who do, you know, stick to their faith when something like that happens, which can be very disorienting. In general, would you say that you will still read books or listen to sermon podcasts from people who have subsequently left Christianity? Absolutely not. I got a book burning going on right here <laughs> of all the people who have disappointed. No, I'm teasing. Uh, yeah, I'm actually um, cool with and I know this is perhaps a little controversial. Don't don't ban any book from your reading list. You know, I, I, I read books from all kinds of people with whom I strongly disagree, have been disappointed by even people whose lifestyles I am disappointed by. So, yeah, I, I don't think I know it's it's a little thornier even, I think, because there's been a, a sort of analogous debate uh, about do we sing songs written by people that have had fundamental shifts in their faith? And that's a little trickier, right, because that that's like the people of God gathered Sunday morning worshiping. So that that's another thing. But as far as books, come on. Yeah, read the books. And of course, I, I am totally open to reading the books 
of people that have left the faith that go on to write books. I mean, I even think of scholars like Bart Ehrman, who used to be evangelicals. I'm going to read his books because I want to encounter the most potent objections to Christian faith so I can know how to respond to them and refine my own thinking. Yeah, that's my stance on it. I'm curious if you can tell us a little bit statistically about why people leave Christianity here in the West and maybe what's different about the numbers of people who are leaving Christianity today, say, as opposed to 50 or 60 years ago. Definitely been an acceleration in the number of people in the West claiming to have no religion. And a lot of people may, may have seen articles and, and st- statistics about this. They, they often call it the rise of the nuns. And that's not nuns like Catholic nuns. That'd be awesome if there were like way more Catholic nuns. Uh, <laughs> no, this is the N-O-N-E-S, right? When I when I wrote my book, it was quite a while ago, 2010, uh, on the topic. At that time, I remember, at least in the younger cohort, 18 to 30, uh, 22% of young adults claimed to have no religion. Uh, many of those, of course, had grown up in Christian homes. That was a huge spike because the numbers before that were from 1990 that showed 11% only. That got grabbed a lot of attention. And some people said, oh, it's just going to come back down. It's a blip. You know, it's it, it's going to kind of float back down to 15 percent. Well, today, depending on what study you look at, it's at 34 to 36 percent. So that's what you call a trend. And there are a lot of explanations for why that's happening. But it's it's a it's definitely a disconcerting trend to me as a Christian. And as far as why they leave, boy, that's a tough one. I think it's funny because especially if you spend a lot of time online, you might assume that they all leave because they read Richard Dawkins or Christopher Hitchens and became angry atheists because that those are the people that go online who write angry screeds about this, who are very combative and get a lot of attention. But statistically speaking, the vast majority of people who leave the faith of their childhood do so, and I'm quoting, because they gradually drifted away. 71%, according to one Pew study, reported that they just gradually drifted away. And so that's important too. And, And those people often don't have huge barriers to belief, right? They kind of Maybe maybe they grew up in the church, and then they, when they went off on their own, they just disconnected from a Christian community, and then I'm not judging where they're at spiritually, but just for all intents and purposes, they're not part of a church, they're not reading their Bible, they're not involved in any sort of religious activities. But that doesn't mean that they're angry at God, or they have huge intellectual objections to Christian beliefs and practices. It may just mean they need a Christian friend or family member to come alongside them and kind of pull them back into the into the church and 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 kind of challenge them to take a second look at the faith. So, yeah, I think that's important to realize most people just kind of gradually drift away without any sort of dramatic exit, even though the dramatic exits are the ones that certainly get attention at least online. Today's episode of Quick to Listen is brought to you in part by Promise Keepers. The Christian men's ministry that filled stadiums across America is once again calling on men to stand up and be counted. I spoke with Ken Harrison, chairman and CEO of Promise Keepers, about the event. How are the local churches involved in this event? The important thing about Promise Keepers is not just the event itself, it's the follow-up. Right now, we're really working with the local churches in Dallas, and so we're only going to do one event per year for that follow-up, so that after that, we were still immersed in that city, helping the different people, helping the churches to make sure that that thing really takes traction. And you guys can trade information. We can hook up with Bible studies. We can hook up on chat rooms through the app. There is interconnectedness with everybody. We're interconnecting guys all over because we're not just doing the event. We're simulcasting it all over America. Men gathering in churches from coast to coast. And we're hoping to have millions of men watching this event live through simulcast together corporately in their churches. For more information, go to promisekeepers.org.
This episode is brought to you by Preaching Today. Are you tired of chasing down quality sermon illustrations? Need fresh ideas for helping your message connect? Each week, Preaching Today adds fresh content to our database of over 14,000 editor-screened illustrations. Quickly find the right story that will bring your message to life and help your people move closer to God. Get started today at preachingtoday.com. I'm going to ask you this question in a second with regards to parents, but since they have such a unique relationship compared to friends with people, I want to talk about that relationship first. And so you were just mentioning, you know, having people come alongside people who may not have a particular church, for instance, and kind of encourage them in that area. And it made me think that to some extent, right, we're all kind of stakeholders in each other's faith, if you want to see it that way. I'm curious, what is a posture that you would recommend friends take to friends with regards to this, especially I'm just going to talk about young adults for a second, since many young adults go through a lot of transition in life stages and locations in jobs and so forth. What are good questions to ask or what are good ways to talk about this in a way that respects the relationship that you have as a friend and respects the other person, but also lets the other person that know that you care deeply about keeping this part about them engaged? The word that comes to mind for me is empathy. Uh, well, maybe a couple words, empathy and curiosity. You don't want to, like I've talked about, be too aggressive and you know come out swinging when you learn that a friend has walked away from their faith. On the other hand, and I think this is probably a temptation, especially for younger people, because we are in a more sort of relativistic world where it's like, okay, that's your journey. This is mine, right? It, it can be easy to kind of go, oh, that's where you're at. Okay, cool. You do you, I'll do me, right? <laughs> kind of have that attitude which can actually convey a sort of indifference. You don't want to do that. Yeah, you don't want to just hit them with a lot of grief either, but you want to say, hey, listen, that's concerning to me. I'm, I'm curious about where you're at. Can you tell me more uh, about your journey and, and where, where you're at and how you got there? I think that it's good to know, for them to know that you care and that you're interested and that you want to maintain that relationship. So many of these stories of people leaving their faith, if you dig down deep enough into them, the break from their faith actually happened in the context of a relationship. You know, they felt maybe alienated in their youth group, or they were abused even by a spiritual authority, or they have relational issues with their parents. Whatever it is, it often plays a role, I think, to maintain those relational bonds are crucial so that when that person does have a crisis in their life, or they start doubting their doubts, you are that person that they turn to. And it's a huge honor if you can re retain that relationship and be the person that they want to have spiritual conversations with. What advice do you give to parents? Oh, man, that's a dicey one. <laughs> like I said, <laughs> there's so many relational dynamics at play. I remember talking to one guy who's like, oh, my 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 son is a Satanist. And I'm like, wow, okay, a Satanist. Mike and all kinds of things. And I dig into the story a little more. And his son is like, he lives in Seattle. He's kind of a garden variety, postmodern sort of dude. <laughs> the, the misdiagnoses can be quite frightening. Or another person I talked to, they were like, so concerned about their, their son who'd become 
I think it was a Presbyterian. And I'm like, hey, <laughs> okay, uh, let's count our blessings here. All to say, beware of how you have an incredibly close relationship with this person as their parent. But often when they're walking away from their faith, sometimes they're pushing back against you a little bit. And so you don't want to make, first of all, the relationship they have with you a referendum on God. right? And so this is where you really have to be careful and affirming and loving of them as your son, as your daughter, because I've talked to so many people, they will not have these conversations with their parents because their parents have preached at them. They've told them they're going to hell. They've just ripped into them. And it becomes the sore point. Even if they stay connected to their parents, it's just like no-go topic for them. So really work hard to be gentle, sensitive, and open. And you can even just say, Hey, I, you know I'm concerned. You know we're at different places when it comes to God. I'd love to continue the conversation. I'm not here to judge you. I'm not here to preach at you. But anytime you want to talk about it, I'm here. Do you have any, just to get kind of more granular, and I know <laughs> we don't always tell people exactly what to do in all of these situations, but I'm just also thinking of households that sometimes will become almost multi-faith households or multi-religion households, right? So even though parents may have thought that they've like created this household or fostered this household where Christianity is kind of the norm with regards to prayer or church attendance or so forth. What are ways for them to kind of live out their faith, I guess, or their commitment to reading the Bible or spiritual language that they used to describe the world while also trying to be cognizant that that may not be, I don't know, hospitable for their child or make their child feel at home? This is one of the hardest things, right? When you are in a, a marriage, for instance, where one of you, where you're a believer and your spouse is not. I saw, you know, there was a conversation online about this recently, and someone said, we need more resources for folks like that. And I was like, absolutely. That's incredibly difficult, not only just for the relationship with your spouse, but then, like you said, how do you inculcate the faith to your children when you're in that sort of situation? It can be incredibly confusing for your kids as well. And of course, this is where I think it's just especially important that you're walking out your faith, uh, not in a showy <laughs> sort of way, but just authentically walking out your faith, being incredibly kind, um, and at the same time, not going, okay, I'm just going to shelve my faith. I'm not going to talk about Jesus to my 10-year-old because I realize we're at different places spiritually, but saying, hey, listen, this is who I am. This is what I believe. I'm joyful and excited about it. I think so often, this is a cruel irony of this topic, a lot of people, they have a loved one that leaves the faith, right? It's incredibly disconcerting to you. And instead of joyfully living out your faith, you actually adopt this dour demeanor because you are so concerned about it, right? And so whenever you're around this person, you're like an Eeyore or something. No, you, you want to show that you're still you're still enjoying your faith, that it's something that's enriching, you know, enriching your life and that you're still passionately following Jesus because ultimately it's a cliche and it's a cliche because it's true. The best apologetic is a life lived for Christ. And so if you can demonstrate that to the people that you love, that, that's huge. Yeah. And I guess to me, it just seems kind of trying to figure out how to walk that line between really modeling this life that's lived out for Jesus without, I don't want to say offending people by how it's lived out, but also not doing so in such a way that <laughs> constantly is going to trigger people around you with regards to how often you might be praying or how much Christianese that you use in any given sentence. I don't know if any one of you guys have wisdom on that. That just seems like trying to create a space where it is both authentic to you, but also where the other person isn't made to feel like needlessly uncomfortable. One thing you want to do is have a really clear conversation 
say it's with a spouse who's an unbeliever, saying, hey, are you okay with me praying before meals? Can I take the kids to church, even if you're not going to join us? We have a good friend. She's in a situation like this where her husband, no interest in church, like in the faith either. But he's like, okay, fine, you can take the kids to church. And that's huge, too, because I don't want to sound too legalistic, but church attendance is highly predictive of later outcomes when it comes to faith. So that those aren't things you want to give up and go, okay, hey, listen, I'm going to hang back. I don't want to you know, impose my beliefs on anyone. If you take that tack, it will have dire consequences for your children. So you do want to be assertive in saying, hey, listen, are these some of the practices that we can observe as a family? And I think most of the time, even people that don't have that same faith will be open to those sorts of things, although there are certainly exceptions. So something else that comes to my mind in situations, at backing up a little bit more to the friend relationship, where if somebody leaves because of a bad experience that they had in church or because of some kind of spiritual abuse, like you mentioned, we have this tendency I think, to to want to make up for that, to somehow right that wrong and maybe apologize for whatever happened in the past. Do you think that's an appropriate response? What what kind of ownership do you think a person of faith should take for the failings that somebody experienced uh, that may have led them to renounce their faith? I think it is appropriate to apologize for it. When you're talking to people, especially when the abuse was clear, I mean, there are always two sides to a story, but when someone was abused by someone they looked up to as a Christian or they were treated unfairly, it's, it's absolutely essential that you say, you know what, that's not cool. And I'm angry for you to express that, that empathy. And it's very healing, I think, for them to hear from a Christian say that that was wrong. That shouldn't have happened to you. Because the biggest danger when it comes to these topics is that they kind of conflate the abuser with God and toss everything out. And so if you can help them, even emotionally, make that crucial differentiation uh, between God and the person who mistreated them in God's name, that's huge. So I think that's the first thing to do, just to acknowledge that what happened is wrong. And then don't also jump right in and go, hey, but that's not like Jesus, or that's not true Christianity, because they may not be ready to hear that quite yet. But just an unqualified, that was wrong. I feel angry for you. I'm sad for you. I hear you. I want to go back to the pastor's comment really quickly. So obviously, as I'm sure you both are aware, having worked on many resources for pastors over your careers, Josh Harris is not the first pastor who's had questions about what he actually believes. Obviously, it's going to be a little bit strange for pastors to publicly dialogue with their congregations about where they are with their faith at any given time. But what are ways for congregants to support their pastors, even unknowingly, as they're kind of wrestling with stuff? Because I think one big takeaway that I hope people have from this is that like faith is an extremely dynamic thing that is constantly being affected by stuff that's happening in life or things that we're reading or other stuff that we're being exposed to. And so to kind of just assume <laughs> that once someone becomes a pastor, their faith becomes frozen to wherever it was, that is not correct. Even just taking our pastor's faith for granted can be extremely exhausting and burdensome for them to constantly have to just carry that weight. So where would you guys suggest that we as the congregation kind of step up in that area? That's a tough one. I'm going to let Kyle handle it. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, thanks, Drew. I would say that I think you're right on. I think that there is tremendous pressure on pastors to have a superhuman 
persona of unwavering, unshaking faith. I remember a seminary professor who actually talked about the fact that we, when we think about moments of doubt, when we think about the ups and downs of faith and how close we feel to God, how strong we feel in our faith, that we tend to think of those things as seasons, that these are year-long or longer seasons of our life. But if we can be honest with ourselves, that's sometimes a daily process that, you know, if you ask, how am I in my faith right now? Well, I might give you a different answer in the morning than I give you at night. And I think that that's, of course, it's true for pastors as well. They're human. And in fact, sometimes it it can be even more difficult because of the pressure that they're under to present as if there is no wave highs and lows in their own faith journeys. What I wouldn't recommend, this is more from the pastor's perspective, I don't think that it's necessarily the healthiest thing to the buzzword of authenticity. I don't know if it's always uh, healthy to go up every Sunday morning and say, well, this week was a really tough one for my faith. I, I have to tell you, I'm not I'm not feeling it this week. You know, that's, that's not probably not appropriate. But finding outlets, I think that even if you're not charting that trajectory with your entire congregation, is there somebody in your life who that you, you can talk to on a honest and and by the truest definition of the world, an authentic basis, who will listen and listen to where the pastor is, if that's a counselor, if it's another pastor or a group of pastors, I think that's incredibly important. And from a congregation's perspective, I think it's really important that while we accept the fact that our pastor is in the role of shepherd, is in the role of spiritual parent, that they are still human that they may have had a bad week and that that bad week has an uh, an effect on their relationship with Christ and with God that that those things that pastors aren't shielded from those things just by virtue of having the title pastor and offering their pastor encouragement not when the pastor doesn't have to ask for it that you can go unsolicited and say hey i see that you know you look tired this week i just know that my family and i are praying for you and we care for you deeply and and know that we're you know we're in your corner rooting for you i think that is amazingly helpful for a pastor at just as it would be for anybody but making sure that we don't do this spiritual hierarchy thing where we put some people in some ultra spiritual Group groupings, while others, you know, can be affected by crises of faith. Well, we're we're all susceptible to these temptations, and the best thing that a congregation can do for their pastor is love them and and pray for them. Yeah, I love that. You're absolutely right, Kyle. And I would even say, not only are pastors just like the rest of us and prone susceptible to doubt and discouragement, but ministry comes with even extra challenges. I think to your faith. That's one of the the weird ironies of ministry is that. Tending to the souls of others can, if you're not careful, really be hard on yours. And in so many ways, you kind of look behind the curtain every day, <laughs> and that can really be corrosive for your faith. I honestly don't know how much a congregation can do, though. I really don't. I think the best thing they can do, of course, like you said, they need to be encouraging and stuff. And these and pastors need dialogue partners, people with whom they can be completely honest and airing their doubts and talking these things through, but they almost need to find other leaders, maybe even people outside of their own congregation that they can be completely transparent with. Because that relationship between the parishioner and pastor is so fraught. Yeah, you, like you said, Kyle, you can't just get up there and go, well, I don't know if I believe this week. Right? In some ways, you have to don the role because it's not just all about you and your feelings. But at the same time, if you have to just swallow all your doubt and discouragement that's incredibly dangerous as well. So you need pastors need to find those people that are either other pastors or people outside 
the people that they're ministering to, to have these kinds of conversations with. Lots of good stuff. Thank you so much to you both for lending your wisdom. Sometimes I feel like some of this like relational advice is almost like recurrent on a lot of these podcasts. And in fact, it would just be easy if you just listen to the name of the podcast, quick to listen, and it would solve a lot of issues, I think. All right. If people have feedback about this, we would love to hear it. You can give it to us at CT Podcast, which is on Twitter. You can also send us an email at podcast at christianitytoday.com. Some of you guys have sent some really nice emails lately. Thank you so much for listening to the show. And I'm so glad that it's something that you guys are finding meaningful and interesting. For those of you who disagree and email us, we also love you too. Before we move on to the last part of the show, I just want to remind everyone that this podcast is made possible by people who subscribe to Christianity Today magazine. And we've had Kyle on a couple times this month already. And I know he's got to talk a little bit about CT pastors, but Kyle, you really have a heart for really approaching pastors in a particular way. And I don't know if you want to share a little bit about your philosophy for what that looks like. Yeah, it actually builds really well off of what we were just talking about. I think the the best thing about CT pastors is that we try very hard for the majority of the content to be not just for pastors, but also by pastors. And that we, we treat the pastoral calling as a human calling, that these ideas of celebrity ministry and spiritual hierarchies can be damaging that as we as we address pastoral ministry we, we want to do it recognizing the particular uh, temptations and pain points exciting things good things about what pastors deal with on a daily basis and there's nothing better in my week than when I get to sit down with a pastor and just ask uh, what are some of the blessings in your ministry what are some of the challenges in your ministry right now and I do find that often uh, it feels like a, a counseling session even there because Pastors very rarely have people who will ask those questions. My hope is that CT pastors more and more can become a place where pastors can go and experience that camaraderie, encouragement, recognition. Oh, these writers understand what it's like to be a pastor. And then don't just leave it there, but offer suggestions that here, here's how I dealt with this difficult situation. And maybe I could have done it better, but I think that it worked out well. And then I think other pastors can learn, can benefit from that. So that's, that's what I love about CT pastors. Thanks for sharing that, Kyle. If you want to access the content, you can go to ChristianityToday.com. We have all of our CT Pastors content there as well. If you want to support us, you can do so by going to morect.com slash quick to listen, morect.com slash quick to listen. That's a great way to support our show. Now is the time of the show that we call Precious Moments. Everyone gets to share something that has brought them joy in the past week. Go ahead, Kyle. So I'm going to sound a little bit like a broken record from the last time I was on uh, the podcast, but... Did you say Texas Rangers baseball? Texas Rangers baseball is number two. Okay. (laughs) Uh, Actually, so uh, riffing on the baseball theme, uh, my hometown of Amarillo, Texas, just recently, this for the the first season, got a double-A team called the Sod Poodles. And for you... Sorry, what? For those of you who don't know what a Sod Poodle is, it's another name for a prairie dog, I'm told. Uh, It's been been fun to follow them from afar. So that's fun. But of course, number one is my new daughter, Jolene, just turned one month old and we did a small daddy daughter photo session this Aww. 
weekend. I don't know how great I did on my end, but she was very cute. I enjoy just spending time with her, but also seeing my two-year-old Claire warming up to her, starting to get used to that. And in fact, for the first time, gave her sister a kiss on the forehead earlier this week. So that just, it's corny, it's cheesy, but it makes a dad's heart just uh, swell. Yeah, swell. <laughs> All right, Kyle, where can people find more CT Pastors content? So uh, CT Pastors content, you can either go to ctpastors.com or you can go to christianitytoday.com slash pastors or follow our newsletter. You can subscribe to our newsletter on the CT Pastors website. And that's where you're going to find the new content that we post, as well as archived content from Leadership Journal, resources from our sister publication, Building Church Leaders, that will help you develop leaders in your church. All right, Drew. Uh, First of all, Kyle stole mine because I, too, have a baby. And I want. <laughs> All right. So, I love it when men brag about how many children they have on the show. Right. Yeah, you got to. And like I said the other day to my wife, I'm like, you know, no day is that bad if it starts with you cuddling a baby. Right. I mean, that's pretty cool. Oh, so that's true. That's bringing me a lot of joy. But I actually going to say something else. It's related. I uh, volunteered at VBS this past week. I realized I just lost my rewards in heaven by saying that. But um, it was intense and crazy and awful and awesome all at the same time because you got 100 screaming kids in this building with no air conditioning. Um, oh, huh. Yeah, I know. But you don't you really... live in the Pacific Northwest? You don't need AC. We did that a couple days there. I, it, bet it that got was a, hot. I bet that was a good smell. <laughs> Yeah, no, there there were no good smells, Uh, (laughs) I assure you. But, okay, sorry, I'm I'm getting sidetracked. But the good thing, the thing that brought me joy is just seeing all these little kids, many of whom actually weren't part of our church, came from the surrounding community, coming in there, just having a blast, learning about Jesus. And there's something that's just refreshing to my soul to see little kids worshiping God. That's that's pretty cool. So that brought me a lot of joy this week. All right, Drew, do you ever tweet? (laughs) I tweet too much. I spend too much time on Twitter. <laughs> if people wanted to see your tweets, where would they find them? They could just, yeah, it's just my name, Drew Dick. You want to jump on there. Can I you spell your last name, though, for people who yes, don't Yes, it is a little confusing. It's D-Y-C-K. And so, yeah, you can definitely connect with me there. I also have a website, just my name again, drewdick.com. You can go there and see some cheesy photos of my family if you're so inclined. Or if you're in the Pacific Northwest, greatest place on earth, drop by and we'll grab a coffee. Really quickly, why don't you just remind people the names of your books, which I know have been getting some hype. Oh, man. Oh, well, thank you. Uh, (laughs) So, yeah, the first one we were talking about a little bit today is Generation X Christian, EX Christian. And then my second one was... uh, Why didn't you make it Generation X Gen, you know? Right. That would have even been cooler. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, I just had to bring that up. Just curious. (laughs) Maybe for the reprint. There we go. And then my second one was Yawning at Tigers, just a devotional basically about God's holiness. And then my last one, which just came out a few months ago. Oh, wait, no, it's been like six or seven months. Anyway, your future self will thank you. Secrets to self-control from the Bible and brain science. And like I tell people, I wrote a book on self-control, not because I'm a master of the topic, but because I desperately needed to learn more. That's my latest one. Well, I will also pick something that is obvious to people who know me for my precious moment. I had a circus performance over the weekend, and that was on my mind a lot because I 
unfortunately don't perform enough to like not feel anxious about these types of things. I guess I think in my head, if I performed once a month, it would feel more just like a habit that I do. But when you perform a solo performance once a year, too much time to just feel dread and worry that it's not going to go well. But it actually did went really well. So I was happy about that. If people want to see video of that, they can go onto my Twitter account. I'm at M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. That is it for us this week. Thank you, everyone, for listening to another episode of Quick to Listen. This podcast is produced by myself and Matt Lindor. Now we have two MLs who are doing that. This podcast is available wherever you get your podcasts, including Spotify, including Apple Podcasts. But Apple Podcasts is where it really counts if you want to review the show. And we are truly appreciative of everyone who does do that. Thank you for boosting the show in that way. You can also boost the show by going to morect.com slash quick to listen. And that's a huge way to show your support for the show as well. Thank you everyone for listening. Music is by sweeps as well as it leads us out. And we will see you all next week.